I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. I'm that sidekick engineer, Hoy, and with me as always, that mad scientist, Jeff Goad Mandaputz. <laughs> <laughs> it is I, Professor Mandaputz. And this week, we're very honored to have with us Professor Newton Nitro, professor of English, fantasy writer, RPG writer, and translator from Minas Gerais, Brazil. Hello, Newton. Hello, hello, Hoy. Hello, Jeff. Hello, good to have you on the show. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> so, uh, Newton, one of our uh, super fans, Raphael Beltrame, recommended we have you on. Um, so thank you, Raphael. So, Newton, we always like to ask our guests um, how they got into role-playing games. And so if you could tell us a little bit about your secret origin story there. Well, I started playing RPG. I started playing D&D &D in 1984. I was living in Rio de Janeiro, in Niterói, which is a city near Rio de Janeiro. And I uh, had an a exchange student from the United States. His name was Richard. And he called me. I, I'm a son of, a, of an English teacher. My mother is an English teacher. So I had some, I knew a little English from that time. And he called me and a group of friends to play. He did. He, he, he spoke a little Portuguese. We spoke a little English, but we loved the game. We played the, 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 the first red box, the Frank Metzner uh, mm -hmm. uh, box, and I love it. So I got it. I copied by hand all the rule books. Wow. And, oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> and then we started playing. We, I, uh, we didn't have the, the dice, so I, we used to make uh, uh, tables, uh, dice tables to, to simulate all the, those strange dices. And we played so much uh, in 19, uh, after 1987, 1988, start to appear more books in, in Rio de Janeiro and then in Belo Horizonte when I come back to Belo Horizonte in English. And from then on, in 1989, the first books in Portuguese were starting to be published. And since then, uh, I've been playing RPG games until, until today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And were you um, reading fantasy fiction at that same time? Oh, yeah. Was that a little later? Mm -hmm. No, so. I, since before. I, I read fantasy and uh, horror and science fiction. My father was a, 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 a huge fan. My father uh, he is an engineer, a mm -hmm. mechanical engineer and, and university teachers. And he had this huge collections of pulp fiction and mm -hmm. uh, uh, dime novels. Uh, that were very popular in Brazil in the 1970s. So I always read it, and uh, and fantasy fantasy novels. I fell in love uh, in in the 80s too. I was very young when uh, a, a Portuguese from Portugal translation of Lord of the Rings fell on my hands, and I read the, the, that book many many times. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, and I also a comic book fan. So. Mm. Um, in Conan, uh, we in the eighties, we in Brazil, they started to publish the Savage Sword of Conan, and sure. I 
love that. I, I, I also uh, started to illustrate because of that uh, magazine. Uh, I started to copy the, the, the drawings. So since then, man, you know, when I, when I went to letters, to, to English literature, to humanities, where I did my university, I also, uh, I, I love literature in general, but my, you know, my biggest love is speculative fiction, uh, fantasy, horror, and uh, so my master, my master's degree was in cyberpunk literature, mm. oh. uh, and my doctorate was in horror literature. So now, were you able to do this uh, uh, in translation, or primarily with the primary sources in the in the, in English? Uh, no, in I, I when I was younger, before <laughs> I lived in the United States, I used to read uh, the translations, Portuguese mm. translations, and then after. Only uh, in uh, English, um, in original, the uh, uh, original form. Okay, we also have a tradition of speculative fiction in Brazil. So we have a lot of uh, great authors. Uh, I, I know that recently there is a lot of uh, translations appearing in Amazon. I'm very happy for that because we have great, great authors in our uh, in the in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are bundled up into um, magical realism. But right. I, I disagree with this uh, with this idea. Many of them were doing science fiction and and pretty much fantasy. Uh, mm -hmm. But Latin America is all magical realism, and everybody goes in the same the same basket. The same, same exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is, which is kind of good because magical realism is well considered by the critics more than you know traditionally. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> that's definitely a, a genre that's looked upon as more literary yeah. than, say, like right. fantasy or science fiction. Uh, but since you are specifically well-versed in cyberpunk, uh, horror, mm -hmm. and fantasy, I would love to hear something you would recommend for somebody to read for inspiration for a cyberpunk game, a horror game, and a fantasy game. Oh, okay, okay. Um, for For cyberpunk... Uh, my recommendation is, you know, um, the, the new cyberpunk, you know, like the, the recent cyberpunk. In the last 10, 20 years, there's been great novels, great new cyberpunk novels. So um, I think Richard, uh, Richard Morgan, let me get my Goodreads stuff here. <laughs> but Richard K. Morgan, that we have the, the that, that series on Netflix, um, um, uh, Alterate Carbon. Alterate Alternate Carbon. carbon. Okay. Alterate Carbon, yes. Alterate Carbon. So I recommend the novels, which are much, much better than the, the, the series. You know, the series is just an appetizer, but I don't, I don't, I don't see a lot of connections but the, the, the basic premise. So the novels are great. There are three novels up to now, and I recommend because it's, it's kind of a post-cyberpunk. So it's a it's a cyberpunk even uh, uh, um, more uh, deconstructed and more critical than the traditional 80s cyberpunk, you know? Very cool. You know, so... And then what about horror? Horror. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Barker fan. I'm a Clive Barker ah, fan. Sure. I worked with uh, him in my thesis, you know? But um, nowadays, currently, I am reading only female authors. And 
in terms of horror, I I like a lot uh, Patricia Briggs, but it's not really horror. It's supernatural. Right, right. But I like her. It's kind of a... a, a She's the werewolf. Uh, yes, right. the werewolf. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is... Oh, my God. Um, by by memory, a new, a new, a new horror... Uh, I, will, I will keep with Clive Barker. So if you, any of you guys, if you don't know Clive Barker, read Clive Barker, read the, the, the 80s novels. Uh, uh, he released, a, 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 his most recent novel was the, the Scarlet Gospels, I think. It's a, mm-hmm. like a continuation. It's not so good, you know. But the 80s stuff is amazing, is controversial, is, is even nowadays is, 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 is queer, uh, 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 view and uh, so that's what I, I would recommend now. <laughs> Very cool. And then finally, what are your what, what what's your fantasy recommendation? My fantasy recommendation. Okay, I'm a, I'm a, at the moment. I am. I finished last week a rereading of the Malazan Book of the Falling. Mm-hmm. Stephen Erickson. Stephen Erickson. I think that he is the the. I'm I'm a fantasy writer, so. Uh, he is the the golden standard, you know. The, the, uh, the previous fantasy writers had Tolkien to to fight with, right? Now we have Steven Erickson, in my opinion. Okay, he set the bar so high that now we need to work our. I don't know if you, if you can say this. I work our asses off to <laughs> to try to reach something close. Close to what he did in the Malazan Book of the Falling. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's gigantic. It's epic. Of course, in my opinion, he, he, he should have had a better editor, you know, a more strong editor. But the guy is so good that even when his books go sideways, it's mm-hmm. amazing because he writes so beautifully. So All I right. recommend this Malazan Book of the Falling. There's nothing better in the market. You know, in the past 20 years, it's a, it's it's a, like a miracle. But at the same time, there is a lot of great uh, authors now. Uh, uh, Annie, oh my God, I, I'm very bad at names, but there is a a, a, a female author in the United States that I, I in, in England, uh, Annie Leck. Leck? Uh, Anne oh, Leckie. Yeah. Annie Leckie. Yeah, yeah. Annie Leckie. Yeah, yeah. I read yeah. her trilogy. Uh, it's amazing. I'm a grimdark guy, you know. I write grimdark. My uh, my RPG setting uh, is th- that is uh, my commercial RPG setting is a grimdark ser- uh, setting, you know. So I'm a grimdark fan, and and Lecky for me, she's amazing, amazing. I read mm. her novels uh, like three or four times. Okay, I talk to her on Facebook. She's She's fantastic. I'm waiting for her next to, to see what she's going to do next. Okay. Amazing. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, especially. Um, yes, we'll definitely have to talk to you and get your insights from, you know, I'll have to learn Portuguese to read your blog. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I, uh, if one day you want to call me to talk about Malazan, man, I, I, I did all the reviews and I'm doing a, a guide for the Malazan series for the Brazilian uh, uh, readers uh, because uh, I don't think this, there is going to be a, a Portuguese translation soon in Brazil. So right, I'm well, trying I mean, to so thick. Those raise books are so thick. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying right, to raise yeah. awareness and, of the series here. Right. And mm-hmm. that series is also unusual because he was a gamer as well. Yeah. Right? 
And he has also has a partner who also writes another part of the world, uh, Ian Esselant, right? Yes. So I, I'm reading the, the Esselant novels I read in the past. I'm rereading them. Okay. Esselant is, Esselant is like me. He's just a hardworking writer, you know, <laughs> you know, so he has yeah. his limitations just right. like everybody right. else. But it's fine too. They are great books too. Some right. people even a, like them. He's not a stylist them. the way that that uh, no. Erickson is. Erickson yeah. is not is in another level, guys. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so uh, this week, uh, just to get to our book here, we are reading the uh, best of Stanley G. and Weinbaum. And let's start with which editions we're reading with. Uh, Newton, what copy are you reading today? Uh, I'm reading the the Amazon copy with the the. Uh, the best stories, right? Mm-hmm. With has the A Martian Odyssey, the Adaptive Ultimate, Parasite Planet, Big Malian Spectacles. I think it's the standard. Uh, uh, okay, issue so any, with any an introduction book. with an introduction uh, by Isaac, Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov, sure. Yeah, well, amazing the introduction. I love, <laughs> I love the introduction, and and in the end there is something from uh, there is a, a postscript. By someone that I, I forgot, but also Robert, a big guy, Robert Block. Yes, no? Robert yeah. Block. Yeah, monster, yes. monster. Yeah, right, psycho. Uh, so, Jeff, what are you reading? Well, you and I are working with the same book. We've got the yeah, that's 1974 yeah. paperback, although mine is falling apart, <laughs> um, <laughs> sadly. Um, but you know, we had we had somebody on the um, uh, Jeremy Harper on our patron book club prior to this. Uh, his cover had also fallen off like mine, so <laughs> I, I I feel like we can blame Ballantine and the aging process more than the way in which I per- personally handle books. Right. Mine's holding up reasonably well, but I don't know. Now you make me nervous. <laughs> it does have a nice used bookstore stamp, though, from uh, Vancouver, the Book Mantle in Vancouver, hold on, Vancouver, BC. So Ooh. it's made its way through here from Canada. Um, and a lovely cover. I forget who the artist is, but uh, I have to look it up. Yeah, the um, the artist is Dean Ellis. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, and we've got um, Tweel and um, Jarvis. Dick Jarvis hanging out, looking at these like paintings of uh, um, Thoth, the Egyptian god, who's actually, I guess, the one of the one of Tweel's, Tweel's ancestors. Yes. Cool. And we'll also take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day, which is vibration. Libration <laughs> and libration is on page 45. I'm sorry, 75 and 76 of my edition. On page 75, which is the first page of the parasite planet, it says, But on Venus, very strangely, it is the eastern and western hemispheres because of seasons, because the seasons of Venus depend not on inclination to the planet of the ecliptic, but on libration. And then on page 76, it says, but the slow libration, a ponderous wobbling of the planet from side to side, does produce the effect of seasons. And the word libration means an apparent or real oscillation of the the moon by which parts near the edge of the disk that are often not visible from the Earth sometimes come into view. So it's kind of this like big fancy word for the way in which um, the planet... um, um, currently moves around the sun, I guess. Um, and that is our Hygaxian word of the day. There we go. Cool. 
So now we're in the library. Um, Newton, had you read any Stanley G. Weinbaum prior to this? No, no, no. I haven't. And uh, it's amazing. I, I didn't know. I, When I was doing my uh, master's degree, I read a ton of science fiction um, chronologically to, to understand the genre and everything. But it really, I, 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 he didn't show up in my, my lists on my list, I think because he died so young, right? He died yeah, very fast. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think his his novel, because I was working more with novels, his novel, I think, is the the something Adam, um, the new Adam, I think. The new Adam. That's right. his, his most famous novel. It didn't show up for me. But uh, um, uh, I, I was pretty impressed because I know the science fiction stories of that time, of the, the time period that he was producing. And he's very ahead of his time. He's mm-hmm. very ahead of his time. He, his uh, fiction is pretty much a, a proto um, new wave, a proto mm-hmm. new wave. And, uh, but it seems to me when I was reading it, it seems to me that he was a guy that was going towards uh, literary fiction. If he lived it longer, probably he would drift towards literary fiction. He would leave the the, the magazines. The, the way he deals with the the way he deals with point of view, uh, it's pretty uh, advanced for the his contemporaries. It's, it's pretty mm. sophisticated in terms when you compare to the stories in the same magazines. If you go to the magazines and you read the other stories, he is a more literary guy. Um, he's starting hi- what I call hybridization, is when this is something very common nowadays, when the guy makes a fantasy story or a science fiction story and mix with uh, literary experimentations and everything. So I think he's a pioneer in that. But the stories of this... The stories of this uh, collection, they vary a lot in quality. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. you know? really they do. Yeah. Right. But the first the first two are amazing. The first mm-hmm. two are amazing. Uh, Which are the Twill stories specifically, A Martian uh, Odyssey uh, and Valley of Dreams? Yeah, the, the, yeah. about them, the Martian guys. And do you yeah. know, I don't know if you notice, do you know the Martian cartoon of uh, Looney Tunes? Sure, sure. Yes, yes. Marvin okay. the Martian. <laughs> Marvin the Martian. There is Marvin, but there is another t- another type of Martian. Right. Uh, it's very bird-like. A bird-like, yes. So right. then I thought, oh my God, maybe there is a connection because this is, this first story is very famous. So I don't yeah. know if the, the, the cartoon artists from the, the 50s, right? They say, oh, let's make a Martian. Oh, and the guy, okay, let's make a bird-like, you know. Right, right. It has a little... Like a little tuft on the yes, head, but, and it's red. Yes, yeah. and a beak, and it's <laughs> yeah, very yeah. similar to the description, right, 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 of the Martian. That's funny. That's right. I didn't even think about that. Right, right. Now, my favorite story in the collection was the Lotus Eaters. What did you think of our two Ham Hammond stories? So that's the uh, Parasite Planet in the Lotus Eaters. Yeah, that's where we're hanging out with Patricia Burlingame and Ham Hammond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think like this. Um, I, I have a, 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 my view of the development of literature is based on point of view. Okay, I think the most important characteristic of the 
the, the literature the, uh, of the 20th century and 21st century is how the points, points of view are sh shifts and how the writers start exploring different points of view on their stories, different points of view from the traditional heterosexual white male, right? Mm -hmm. Because that, that's, you know, that's the, 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 the standard, right? So uh, uh, what I love it about Winebound is that although all his stories is a celebration of the heterosexual white male anxieties and fantasies and everything, but he, maybe because he is, he is a more literary-minded guy, he starts to, to, to leave the, this point of view to start to explore other types of point of view, like a, a, an alien mm -hmm. mind. It's so mm -hmm. funny because he's very good with aliens and very bad with females. Very true. But the Lotus Eaters... For me, it's, I think, my three favorite story. My favorite story maybe is The Lotus Eaters because mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm, a, uh, I'm a kind of, uh, I love Buddhism. I love uh, non-dual things, you know. Uh, I love this type of transcendence, transcending right. the ego and everything. And uh, uh, he, he, he gives a, a critical view of this kind of mentality, which I think... In the 30s, uh, uh, with the beats, the, the beat writers, the poets, uh, the, the, it's the, this, the Buddhist concepts were starting to spread in the literary, um, literary world. If you see Jack Kerouac, if you see all these right. guys that are producing. Because I always think like this, guys, when you want to, to understand a writer, go into his era, era, and try to see what he was writing, what he was reading to, because this right. was influencing. This is right. an influence to him. So probably right. he was he wrote this uh, story as a criticism to this oriental oriental idea of transcendence, transcending the ego, finding peace beyond the the beyond humanity, right? Beyond the the, the suffering of humanity. Yeah. Does that speak to you also as a, yeah, as you say, as Orientalist, right? So from, you know, I'm from Vietnam, you're from Brazil. So these are colonized countries, right? So yeah. to what extent do we have to accept stuff because we're in a colonized situation that it's hard to change? And to what extent do we have to not accept that mindset in order to have the idea of progress and to throw off our mental shackles, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the thing is, is uh, uh, what, what is in, in, incredible to me when I read these stories is that uh, one thing that I find fascinating from the American mentality is the idea of fixing things, you know. They right. have this optimism. Let's fix everything because we, 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 let's do it and then we think about it, what we're doing. But let's do yeah. first, you know. This, yeah. this is this is fascinating, and um, um, one of the things that I was, I was thinking today, in the 30s when he was writing, he was writing 1933, for example. So it's very close to the Great Depression of 1929, mm -hmm. and in right. the Great Depression, United States fell, like is is considered by the Americans the worst time of their of their history, right? right. So. 
everything was devastated. When, when I was reading the Martian story, the first story, and he, he talked about the dead fields and the dust. There is a, 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 a in the United States during this time, there was the right. dust. Uh, dust bowl. Dust bowl, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And everything was destroyed. And then he arrived at a city. There was nobody in, the, in those cities. It's a decadent civilization. So I think it was, was a way for him to work his anxieties. Like the old America is over. We need to rebuild something. Mm -hmm. So uh, from zero, I don't know. So I agree. And I feel like he's working through a lot of anxieties in these stories. And I think especially when we look at the fact that here's a person who was dying of cancer and um, in the adaptive ultimate, you know, we've got this woman who is on her deathbed. She's going to be dying any moment now. And then they inject her with this serum. <laughs> and now she can like, adapt to anything. She and now <laughs> no disease can stop her and she can become the most powerful thing in the world. And then um, also in, uh, but then a, an interesting contrast to that is in the Lotus Eaters, we have these, we have these creatures who have complete acceptance of their death. Like they are a, they are, um, they are a race of beings who are absolutely not long for this world. And they're fine with that. That's like, that's just what their situation is. So why rage against it if there's nothing you can do? You know, so it's really interesting the different ways in which, you know, he's kind of going through the denial acceptance process in his literature. Yes, yes. But um, I know that your podcasts are for people that play o OSR, D&D, RPGs. And what can we get from this, uh, uh, this literature from the end file. So my tip uh, for all the game masters and players, f what I got from Stephen Baum was this. Um, he's very skilled in portraying um, an alien mind or an alien psychology, okay? Mm -hmm. Just uh, one, one of the reasons why I like Steven Erickson and the Malazan Book of the Falling is how he portrays the uh, what we call exotic races, right? The races beyond the human uh, that are not human. They are really different because they have a different culture, different values. At the same time, he makes them very uh, identifiable, but they are different. They are not humans. They have different ways of dealing with stuff. So Stephen Weinbaum is amazing in this regard. So the tip for the game masters and the players is this. If you're going to introduce a, a, a different race or a different a creature, an alien creature, start build, build this creature with a culture, with values that are different from the regular values. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, maybe if they give you their word, they will keep their word until they die. They never go back or they never lie or they they are they are not concerned with food, with gold. They are concerned with something that are completely alien for us. You know, mm -hmm. they like to to they like beauty. Beauty mm -hmm. for them is the most important thing. And they live for that and they die for that. So that's the tip, you know, right. really portray uh, uh, if you're going to, to bring, in, bring in elves, 
Create a culture for these elves and make it different, alien, strange. It's interesting. You're saying having pointed ears isn't enough of a difference? <laughs> isn't enough of a difference, isn't it? Right. right, and I think, like, for example, just to pick up on one of the ideas you threw out, a character, uh, culture that doesn't lie, but it's still, can it lie by omission, by not saying anything, yeah. right? Or or can it still, um, it, or can it find a way to, or for a culture that always keeps its word, find a way to keep to the word of its promise, but... Also, maybe not keep to the spirit if it needs to do something else. You know, it has well, its and own that's objectives. why you then need to ask yourself the why of it. Like, right. are they are are they a race of creatures who don't lie because you know they have some really strong moral code against that, or are they creatures that don't lie because they don't see any reason in 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 leading people astray, or do they not lie because like it just doesn't even occur to them? Not because they're dumb, but like it's just so not the way their brain thinks that like why would they? say something that's not true, right. you know? So I think if you, you not only say that this is how they behave, but also explore the why of why they're Absolutely. behaving yeah. that way. Oh, yes, yeah. And yeah. another thing is about morality, okay? Um, one of the things that I try to do with my fantasy fiction, my fantasy settings, all my work in RPG here in Brazil is trying to defy uh, the traditional morality, Okay, what is right and wrong? I still think that fantasy literature has a very strong, you know, I don't like to say this word, I, I will say a better word, a reactionary, not conservative, a reactionary worldview. Mm-hmm. So we need to progress it further. And how do you do that? So I recommend to people that write uh, fantasy, that, that make, uh, uh, create settings, Read a little about anthropology, okay? Read a little about other cultures. Try to, to real cultures, you know? Uh, I, I finished a book, a novel, where the culture, I based the culture of the, the it's a, a, a nomad tribe. I based it on the Tuaregs. And I really went deep into the Tuaregs of the, the desert of the, the, the north of Africa. And when you go deep into a culture, you see that it's very peculiar. It's a different world of view. There's a lot of details. The morality is not our morality. It's a different morality. And you need to own to that. So try to experiment with different types of morality. What is morality for, for you guys? Is what is right or wrong for a, a certain culture? Mm-hmm. Which it's the good and evil, for example, it's old fashioned. We don't use this anymore in fantasy literature. All the, 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 the new books that I read, I never heard this word anymore, evil. <laughs> you, right. you don't even write about it. What yeah. we have is different worldviews and they enter right. in conflict. Right, right. I mean, a perfect example of that, obviously, it's beyond the scope of this would be, for example, Dune, where you talk about anthropology and looking about the value that's very much shaped by the setting that they're in. Do you see any examples of that in this in these stories that um, that we've read that you really want to point out in terms of the values that are are, are different? Um, for example, maybe some of the creatures that are in the first two Martian stories, or you know. yeah, uh, the the uh, yes, the, the the creatures of the first the the first creature is amazing. He's an amazing character, the Martian. I forgot his name in the, uh, the Twill. Quill, Quill, Quill a, yeah. yes. Yeah. He's amazing. I love his, his Martian. Uh, he, he, this character will stay with me because I read so much and we don't remember many things, but that character 
the relationship with the oh the the cowboy the American cowboy right um, I I found fascinating uh, but uh, one thing for me if you analyze all the stories one thing for me that is repetitive that that appears many times is the trope of the what what uh, the philosopher Chaichek used to say the id machine the id machine what is what is an id machine is a is a something a device that realizes dreams okay mm. makes dreams come true in his uh, stories all the time you you have this kind of trope so you have right, like the world the, of if yeah yeah the world of the if pigamolian yeah. spectacles there are many things even in the proteus island which mm -hmm. i think is a uh, his version of Muro's Island, so mm -hmm. he made his his personal version, right? There, it's like a need machine too, and the need machine is always connected to the female, to the female mm. character. the The dream is always a woman. It's always so. In his stories, he comes back to this. I think because it's very is very common in the literature of this period that type of character. Is the is the pro is the femme fatale mm -hmm. exactly, which is how the white male, white heterosexual male, were dealing with the anxieties with uh, uh, the women that are arriving. You know, women were buying cars on that time. They right. were starting to to be part of the workforce, especially in the United States. United States, I think, is United States in Europe, but in, in the United States, I think the depression put women on the forefront and then we have the war mm -hmm. and this you know this destroyed the, the the male identity the traditional male identity was already destroyed because of the first war right right and the flappers so the whole sexual identity thing was changing exactly and like and, uh, and homosexuality among uh in the literary groups were were you know uh, uh, uh subdued and transform it into narratives that show this anxiety, like how we're going to deal with that. How, how, and it's so incredible because you see speculative fiction uh, um, by Stephen Weinbaum show a world in the future where the gender roles are pretty much the same as in the, the 30s. I remember right. a story, there is a pilot, a female pilot in the future, in the far future. Right. And she is criticized because why is she a female pilot, you know? Right, yeah. Redemption like, Karen, right? Yeah. Right. She's, she's like, oh, and it's because she just really wants to make enough money to keep her, her household home. Exactly. And so it's a very domestic value that she actually has. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's interesting because like I feel like that character, whose name I'm forgetting, um, is a really interesting juxtaposition to Patricia Burlingame. Because Patricia Burlingame, Ham Hammond's um, um, first his... Um, love interest in the parasite planet and then his wife in the lotus eaters she is super competent she is definitely more competent than he is he's kind of like the bumbling sidekick to her you know cool collected confidence yeah. um but also at the same time at the end of parasite planet you know he's like just so you know, you're going to marry me and she's like yeah. i know <laughs> and then she like gets all like demure um, but also, you know, in both the adaptive ultimate and in the ideal, we see um, this idea of like the like um, 
or maybe more so in, in like in the I'm sorry, not in the adaptive ultimate, rather in the worlds of if and the ideal in both mm-hmm. of our uh, Mandipus. Professor Manderput stories. Um, when we've got Dixon Wells going after his ladies, you know, he is hanging out with the showgirls who are kind of like fun and easy and whatever. But when he I, when he envisions his ideal woman, she's dressed very modestly and mm. she's very chaste, yes. you know. So it's like here he is like, you know, hanging out with and presumably having sex with the wild girls. Yes. But like the one he wants to marry is a nice good girl. All right. <laughs> yes, it, because it's a transition period. It's like right. they, yeah. they are kind of lost. And uh, they don't know uh, what will happen. Um, yeah. You know, um, I, I studied a lot during my master's about uh, um, the, um, the influence of the Weimar Republic in Germany, which was an extremely progressive period and right. uh, which uh, highly, highly advanced, even theories of gender, the theories of the gender identity that we have today. The first, the first, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, first ideas came from the Weimar Republic with the experimentation and everything. But uh, uh, during the, the, the 30s, the, the narratives, the movies from the Weimar Republic, when I, they arrived in the United States, man, they explode, mind explosion with the writers. And then right. came... The femme fatale is this, this, right. this women. It's, that uh, are... Louise Brooks, Lulu, Paps, stuff like that. And it's, and, uh, yes. And, so men, and... men, men were completely lost. The, the, the heterosexual male, uh, the true American, they didn't know what to do, you know, like, right. because they want this new woman, uh, highly independent and everything. They, they, this fascinates them, but also it makes them afraid. So like in Mars, in the, 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 the dream beast, it's a woman that appears, right? When when the guy uh, when his his uh, the dream beast was is the monster that kills the 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 by giving you your greatest dream, it's mm. a woman that appears. Why? Why a woman? Yeah, I, I always thought like why? You know. And it's interesting that these periods of. Uh, extreme progressivism also will potentially lead to periods of extreme reaction. So therefore the rise of fascism right after that, or some of what we currently witness, at least in the United States and actually even around the world and in Brazil right now and in the United States in the last four or five years, right? This extreme reaction. But now, now we are going to um, this, this pendulum, this, this reactionary, uh, reactionary progressivism, this goes all the way. What, what, what we are going to have now next year in our country will be a strong reaction. I hope, you know, I see this, Absolutely. you know, growing very fast. People are so angry with, with uh, the, this new fascism in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, yeah, the and United States, Brazil, and the UK are definitely going through a lot of that right yeah. now. Yeah. And especially Brazil right now. Yeah. But in Brazil, it's uh, Brazil. It's a very, uh, our culture is an hedonistic culture. It's pretty different from, uh, uh, everything. Every time uh, people try to put Protestantism here, uh, uh, Protestant uh, Protestant morality in Brazil, mm-hmm. it never works because yeah. our country is so hot, and and you know it's very hot, and we have samba, we have carnival. It's right. it's very hard. So what we have here is the the level of hypocrisy here is so high, and sometimes. Yeah. 
it arrives at this type of, of, of situation, you know? Like, mm -hmm. uh, what we have here is a farce. So, you have true supremacy, true white supremacy in the United States. In Brazil, we have a farcical white supremacist. People, uh, there are white supremacists in Brazil that they are all brown, okay? Because <laughs> we are miscegenated. I have... In my ancestors, I, I am my grandmother, my grandfather, they were Jews. On the other side of the family, we have Indians, we have black people, we have people from, from the south of Portugal, which has Arabian uh, influence. Brazil is like this, it's a mess in terms of uh, identity and everything. But people here have the, the mud complex, the colonialist complex, they import this stupid ideas to the tropical setting and they become mm. Nazis of the tropics. And it's so ridiculous. It doesn't last long. You know, it's not in our quality. Our culture is very on the good and on the bad side. We are very uh, volatile, very hedonistic. We are very passionate. So mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, our, the, the monster, I call him the genocide guy. But the genocide guy was elected. Oh, I, I don't want to. I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. We're well, going forward. But you bring up something very interesting, though, because uh, <laughs> traditional uh, RPGs, I, mean, I guess we're, we've talked, we've already yeah. broached the subject of RPGs. So uh, traditional RPGs have this, again, a fictional idea of a sort of a Western European culture. Yes. And then to the extent that D&D &D is an American game, it also brings in American ideas of, say, colonialism in the West and, and, and you know, mm -hmm. the, the American West. What does a Brazilian, you, you now have native Brazilian RPGs. Yeah, yeah. Are they bringing in Brazilian culture or are they still relying on these other tropes? Yeah, you know, um, five, five years ago, I was hired to develop a setting, a traditional dark fantasy setting with uh, uh, pseudo-medieval style and everything, with, with all the elements, with elves, with orcs. I had to do that. That was my job. So what I did to put a, the Brazilian uh, twist in it is to put our third world view of these things. You know, there is the, maybe one of the advantages of being poor, of living in the favelas, in the slums, you know, I, of, of watching the world from the, 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 the downside instead of the upside. One of the, the advantages is that you get pretty skeptical about everything, you know, mm -hmm. because you, you see uh, the costs of the beautiful things that capitalism gives to the rich people. You see the costs, mm -hmm. you see mm -hmm. the limits, okay? You see uh, that there is no such thing as a free lunch and this is real, really true. So if you, we have countries that are having uh, free lunch, there are other countries that are paying for that. And this yeah. is great. So uh, we have this skeptical view. What I try to do is to put this into a fantasy in a fantasy world. So my world, the world of uh, a Legion, the name is Legion. Um, it's a world that is absolutely corrupt. So um, the, 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 there is cracks in everything. We have a paladin class, but the paladins are real, true fanatics. You know, it shows them, <laughs> it shows them with all the ugliness. Um, so, uh, and also humor, Wait, which is very... So are the, 
Hmm. Are the paladins the defenders of the poor or the defenders of capitalism? That, yeah, they are the defenders. Uh, the, palad, the paladins is are def- in, in, in our setting, they are defenders of their faith. And their faith is a source of money. So the paladins are always from rich families. And they okay. keep the faith because their faith depends, uh, their, their, their wealth depends on their faith. Mm-hmm. So they are like uh, um, they they appear to the population and they motivate the population to give money to the church that they represent. They are like televangelists, the the the, the paladins. And the player has the two choices: he can play like this, like a televangelist, a medieval televangelist, or he can be a falling paladin, a guy that oh my god, I did so much. So a lot of shit in my life. I need to, you know, uh, 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 atone from my sins. You know, I uh, we also created a, a world full of favelas. Our our fantasy world has favelas, has corrupt militia, has a, an empire which is uh, extremely mercantilist empire, where um, there is miscegenation in in the setting too. A lot of miscegenation, and at the same time, the elves, uh, uh, one kind of the elves, they are supremacists. So we tried to to bring these things, the Brazilian reality, into the the fantasy. With humor, too. There is a lot of humor in the setting, too. Dark humor. Newton, I have a question uh, to build build on this. So the American West has a really large um, share of our mental mythology in the United Mm -hmm. States. Mm Mm-hmm. And to the Amazon, you know, this, you know, the Banderantes, and what does the Amazon represent now, both in terms of uh, the mental picture and the fa- in, in your fantasy setting for for Brazilians? Yes, uh, in Brazil, we, we don't have this this image of the the cowboy, the guy that goes alone to to brave a new frontier. We don't have this this in our myth. What we have in our myth is the idea of the community. Okay, so Brazilians, they do nothing alone. We are a, we are a, a, a tribal people. Right, so you have your Samba you know? crew, you have yes, your... Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the capo- I, I, I did capoeira for more than 12 years. I had to stop sure. because of my knees. The capoeira, we have a circle. In Brazil, because we are so... Uh, um, the population suffers so much that we need to organize ourselves in, into communities. That's why the favelas uh, are communities. We call today, we don't say favelas anymore, like we, we call communities because this is what they are. So the Amazon, the idea of the Amazon is the idea of the tribe, the tribe of the, the maybe the Indian tribe, maybe uh, the communities and everything. So um, this idea of the self-made man is an imported idea. It's not what we do here. What we do here is a, is a, the building of a community. This is this is the way, you know. This is the way. <laughs> is that something that can be incorporated in RPGs in a way that, like, yeah. again, I don't think that's part of part and parcel generally of American RPGs up to, uh, up until you get to name level and then you get to have you know build a fortress, right, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> but but is that something that? you think uh, would be a, a great differentiating point for games that are de- de- uh, developed from the Brazilian mindset that you're de- building communities sooner yes. in the game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, build communities. Uh, when people are exploring, you create tribes. 
instead of killing a bunch of goblins, make the characters meet a tribe of goblins and see what's going to, and create a culture of this tribe of goblins. This would be a very interesting. And then you have, you make the first contact and, and they go there. Uh, uh, I'm thinking about how uh, the, the Amazon was colonized. It was a brutal thing. But what would happen is we had the Bandeirantes, which was expeditions made by white men from Portugal, Portuguese men, with slaves, black slaves, and many, many times miscegenated people which were considered inferior than the, the Portugal, and they entered. They entered into the, the forest. This is during the colonial times. They entered into the forest, these expeditions, killing everything in sight, okay? Killing everything in sight. And sometimes, this is the, the bizarre thing, sometimes they, they met uh, peaceful tribes, that the, the, they, the tribes offered the, their, their women to them, and instead of killing, they stayed there and created a city and miscegenated with the Indians. This is the, the, the strange things about the, the Brazilian experience of colonization, okay? Because our country is so isolated from Portugal that much more than the United States and England much more on that time that mm -hmm. the people that came here, they had no choice but to stay here and to mix. So this created a different mindset. But at the same time, the colorism we have until today, we have this uh, uh, stratified uh, society that is, this is something that we are trying to, in the past years, to, to, to change, you know, even though we are a mixed uh, people, but we still have this, these problems. But it's a little different because uh, there is a resignation when the Portuguese came here. They had to stay here. Right. And, and, and in reality, there is this other side. Brazil is so beautiful. We have uh, uh, the most beautiful nature that I know, and we have the nice weather. We don't have uh, uh, snow. We have sun all year. We have the most beautiful beaches in the world. The food here is amazing. Right. And so the guys came here say, oh, I'll never go back to that land of the Europe. Right. I will stay here. You know? So, I mean, this is incredibly rich territory for even in the traditional mindset of D&D, right? Because you have this idea of like the keep on the borderlands, right? But instead of this harsh territory, what if they go into this paradise that yes. is yes. Brazil or the Amazon? Uh, but we have to do this very responsibly, right? We can talk about conflict. We can talk about all the, the bad things that happen. But can we, you know, um, can we do this responsibly? I think it would be difficult for someone outside of Brazil to do this responsibly. One setting, one setting uh, uh, that uh, we criticize a lot is Mastica. Okay, there was never a Brazilian setting in the TSR, but there was right. Mastica, which is you know uh, there were a kind of Brazilian Indians inside Mastica there. Right. And, um, and unfortunately, Mastique still kept the same uh, mind frame of uh, the savage people are primitive and the, the, uh, the civilized people are superior and everything. So mm -hmm. um, maybe... Is that something that can be reclaimed, though, Mastique? Yes. Or is that something, yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I think uh, um, you could make a setting 
Uh, I have some plans to do something like this, but you could make a setting where the, the where you show the the how the natives uh, the way they do things. In the end, uh, Steven Erickson does this in the Malazan, but in the end, it's it's even superior than the the the. Um, the um, devastation and the the immediatism of the civilized peoples that right, right. come destroy everything build things build cities where everybody torture each, each other instead right. of the primitive people that live more close to nature but not in a right. romantic way so if you had these natives let's again let's pretend we're playing traditional dnd i know we're uh -huh. running up to the end at the end of this would they be elves who are because they are just so superiorly or would it be better to have it as orcs so that you have to understand that this is our colonizing mindsets that sees these orcs as ugly and as savages and that we need to learn from them rather than just see them as this thing. And then we realize that the orcs do have a society and a culture uh, that is in tune with the environment that they're living in. I right? like these, that. These, uh, yeah. Yes, I think so. I, think so. I, I, I like that. I think we should always... Uh, use the tropes to go against the tropes or to break the tropes or to, to you know, uh, um, uh, increase these. Our jobs now, you as creators, our jobs is to increase empathy. This is our jobs today, okay? We need to work towards a more empathic society. And empathy means see reality through other eyes. I write... Mm -hmm. My job as a writer is to do this. I, I don't have male protagonists in my stories. Because, why? Because I like to push myself to, you know, uh, go forward and, and try to explore different ways of looking at the world. So I think we should do that. You should do that. But also, don't go to the other way. If you go, if you say, okay, all my orcs are good guys or you know, peaceful guys and everything. Maybe you are also committing another, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, generalization, stratification. Mm -hmm. right, that, that's the uh, noble savage uh, yes, stereotype. Yes, the noble right savage, there. yeah. I, I, yeah. I prefer the Malazan way. That's why I always tell people, read Malazan. Um, you have uh, different cultures, but in, this, in the culture, you have good people, you have bad people, you have selfish people, you have coward people. You, you, there is no uh, stratification because this is what we see. We, if you study anthropology, you will see that. You will see that. Like the, the Brazilian Indians here, they are not good people or bad people. They're people, you know? Yeah. Uh, they, they, they have a brutal history too. Uh, they have problems inside of the tribes. They have political problems inside of the tribes. So it, they are because they are like everybody else. You know, they are humans. So they feel anger. They feel frustrated. They feel they lie. They sometimes tell the truth. But the problem is the generalization, demonization, because these are the tools of the fascists. Okay, mm -hmm. fascists. The first thing they do, they generalize uh, a social group. That's the first thing. So I think in our in our RPGs we should uh, try to to stop to doing that. Very very well said. <laughs> uh, so uh, Newton, uh, uh, are there any last thoughts on the stories before we get out, or would you want to tell us uh, tell our audience where they they can find you and your works? Okay. Well, um, 
if you want to find me, you just go to Nitro Dungeon blog. Nitro Dungeon blog. You just write this. I, right. I, I, it's nice. unfortunately it's all in Portuguese, but you can use Google Translator if you are interested. Right. So that's it's, uh, Nitro Dungeon for yes, yeah, Nitro yeah, Dungeon. Yeah. It's one of yeah. the oldest RPG blogs of Brazil. Uh, more than two million views and everything. There, there are tips for game masters, but all in Portuguese. Unfortunately, uh, I have a, a YouTube channel too. Uh, but um, in English, uh, we are. I am. I want to release my things in English. So maybe in one year or two, there will be a, a, a Kickstarter of a, a steampunk RPG. I want to do this in English. It's called Steam Runners, and so um, and it's a it's a post-colonialist setting. It's a uh, alternative history of the 19th century where Europe is destroyed and the, the biggest, the, the most powerful countries in the world of this 19th century is the Brazilian Empire, which is a native civilization, uh, the African Union and the, the Indian Empire. Uh, so it's a upside down 19th century and uh, it will be fun. It will, the um, game system is the Apocalypse Engine. It's, it will be a PBTA very heavily uh, uh, modified. So mm -hmm. it will be a narrativist game. But also, I think in two or three years, our setting and Old Dragon is our system, OSR system, and our setting Legion, maybe there will be in English too. But it will take a little time. <laughs> okay, well, very good. Well, anyway, I'm sure they can re reach you through, is reaching you through... Uh... Uh, Nitro Dungeon, the best spot, or someplace yes, else? Nitro Dungeon yeah. is the best. It's the best place. Okay, so yes. tell Go to his site and tell him in, co in the comments that we want all this stuff in English now. And then maybe... <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> okay. And because we are Americans, we demand it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, so uh, if you... Uh, what, what, oh, I have to give us uh, some rec possible recommendations, right, for our next poll. Is that right, Jeff? Uh, yes. So um, right now, our, our patrons can now help us pick our upcoming topics. So Hoy is going to pick four. Four? Are you going to four? I think I've got four. I think I've got four. Okay. Hoy is going to offer up four options for episode 104 that you will be able to vote on. So okay. Hoy, what are our four options? Okay. So I have very loosely, and people will quibble with this term, uh, Urban Roots of the New Weird. Four, four books from Urban... So. First one is The Pastel City by M. John Harrison. That's the first Viraconium novel. The Borrowables by Michael de Larabaiti. Uh, so B-O-R-R-I-B-L-E-S. Punk Town by Jeffrey Thomas, which is a sort of uh, cyberpunk Lovecraftian book. And let's say the first of the books of blood by Clive Barker. So that'll be our very loosely urban roots of the new weird. I love it. This is going to be um, a fun episode. I, I, I would be down to read any of those. Yeah. So before our episodes, we always have our patrons on and they get to chat with us from our patron book club. And uh, today we had Jeremy Harper, Dan Alexander, Brandon Cruz, and Adam Stiers join us. That was a really fun conversation. I would love to also give a shout out to a handful of our patrons. Thank you to um, Andrew Berkery, Brandon Cruz, By Grinstow, Dave Hotstream, Matt Richards, Ray, Robert Poynton, and Vixter. Y'all are awesome. We really appreciate your support. And if you would like to show us some support and you're not currently a patron, please head on over to 
patreon.com slash appendix and book club and hoy where can folks find us all right uh you can reach us on twitter at, at appendix underscore n or you can drop us an email at appendix and book club at gmail.com um if you like us uh please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice it does help people find us okay thank you so much everybody and newton so much of an such an honor to have you on thank you yes thank you newton it's been really fantastic all right see you in the stacks read on The library is closed!